Ludd Lopate at large, I'm Ludd Lopate. Consider these statistics. About one in every 100 people suffers from schizophrenia. That's more than 3 million Americans and 82 million people around the world. Schizophrenic patients occupy about one-third of the beds in psychiatric hospitals in the United States, and yet as many as 40% of adults with the illness are untreated each year, and 5% of schizophrenics commit suicide. In his new book from Doubleday, Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family, Robert Kolker takes us inside the family of Don and Mimi Galvin and their 12 children, six of whom have been diagnosed with schizophrenia. It reveals the unfathomable horrors the family endures while also looking into the history of schizophrenia, its possible causes, how it's been treated, and what the future of care looks like. The book has been on the New York Times bestseller list for five weeks now and was recently chosen for the revival of Oprah's book club. I'm very pleased to welcome Robert Kolker to our show. Hi. Hi. Thanks so much for having me on, Leonard. I'm really glad to talk about Hidden Valley Road. Well, it's a fascinating story. How did you first hear about the Galvin family? Well, I first heard about them about four years ago. Um, a good friend of mine, John Gluck, who edited me when I was at New York Magazine a long time ago, uh, he went to high school with the youngest Galvin child, with Lindsay, way back when. And he'd been and in touch with her for decades, uh, back in the 80s. So they, no, I mean, they where? Were, where did they, where oh, did they live? At, at, Hotch, at, at Hotchkiss. They went to high school and boarding school together. Um, uh -huh. So when he met her, she was trying to, you know, reinvent her life, and she wasn't telling anybody about her family story. Um, but they remained friends for many, many years, and he got to know other people in her family, including her sister Margaret, and he started to get the gist of the family story. And then one day, four years ago, the sisters came to him and asked his advice because they'd been talking amongst themselves for decades about trying to let the world know about their family. I mean, this is a family with six people who were schizophrenic, six out of the 12 children, and yet nobody knows their name. They, the studies done on them were anonymous. Um, and they decided they didn't want to write a memoir. They wanted an objective journalist to take the story wherever it led him. And they, uh, thanks to John, I was connected with them and met them then. But I wanted to be careful, and so I really didn't begin the book in earnest until I had made sure that every living member of the Galvin family was willing to be interviewed. That took a while, but then I then I got to work full-time on it in earnest. And how many were girls? How many were boys? And what was the age range? These children were born during the baby boom. There were 12 children born over 20 years, from 1945 to 1965. The first 10 children were boys, and the last two were girls. Uh, so there was a 20-year age difference between the oldest and the youngest. Twelve kids, that's a lot of kids. Uh, was that typical <laughs> of the area they were living in? There were a couple other large families on their street, so they weren't completely anomalous. But they were unusual in their broader family. I mean, they did have very, many family members, far-flung family members, say, asking explicitly, why are you having so many children? Um they were a Catholic family, but that wasn't the entire explanation. In the book, I sort of go into depth about various reasons why they would want more kids. One would be to stand out in their community. They both, both parents seemed invested in having lives of distinction. But then for the mother, the matriarch of the family, Mimi, she really um, had lost a lot in her life, including a father who left the family in scandal and, uh, and had been uprooted from where she lived, to go live in Colorado Springs, where she was raising her new family. And I think it's quite possible that she had so many children to sort of create a new story for herself, a new narrative, and also to give, have company while her husband was off, becoming more and more distant. Now, your last book was about sex workers. How much did you know about schizophrenia as a, as a journalist? Um, about as much as I knew about sex work. Which is to say nothing. I, um, I, you know, as one of the pleasures of being a nonfiction writer or being a journalist is you get to dive in and learn about new things uh, with each new subject that you write about. I, I had a lot of background speaking with vulnerable people who have been through extreme circumstances. Usually these are people who never dreamed that they would be getting media coverage. And um, I think that that ability 
was a good rock for me while I worked on this book. But the schizophrenia part was entirely new to me. And so I, I hit the books pretty hard. I spoke with lots of experts. And I eventually got a, a good thread to follow, which was an ongoing debate within schizophrenia about nature versus nurture, um, which really began back when they first gave schizophrenia a name at the turn of the century and really hasn't ended in a way. We still aren't completely sure how much of it is hereditary and how much of it might be activated by the environment. And that debate runs all through the years that the Galvin children became sick. Uh, the, uh, the genetic thing, it was called what, epigenetics? That's right. The, the current thinking is that perhaps there are latent genes that might make a person vulnerable to developing acute mental illness, but that not everybody uh, sees those genes go operational. You know, they might remain latent their entire life. It might take some sort of trauma or outside effect to activate those genes. Um, well, you know, there's a current well, argument about about the recreational drugs being a possible trigger. There are other possibilities, too. Although doctors don't think there's just one schizophrenic gene, don't they suspect you're more likely to become schizophrenic if someone in your family uh, is schizophrenic, someone in, in the past as well? Yes, that's right. It's an extraordinarily complex illness. In fact, it's not technically not really an illness at all. It's a syndrome, which is to say it's a collection of symptoms that mm -hmm. doctors have given a name. Um, as opposed to something like, say, COVID-19, which um, we know what that is, molecularly anyway. Um, we don't know what schizophrenia is. We simply have classified a bunch of symptoms as schizophrenia. So it stands to reason then that there is not one gene that you could medicate that would really affect everyone with schizophrenia. It really is a lot of genes. And in fact, once they sequenced the genome, they found far more than 100 possible genetic mutations that each had a small tiny bit of impact on the possibility of getting schizophrenia. So it, it's, a, it, it's a tricky thing to nail down. It's often accompanied by anxiety disorders like obsessive compulsive behavior, depression, panic disorder, you say also drug abuse. Um, now, but doesn't it usually present itself somewhere in early adulthood? Is that what happened with the Galvins? Exactly. With they, their oldest child? Yes, the oldest child, Donald, um, he, Donald he exhibited some sort of teenage variety of troubles from an earlier age, from his mid-teens, but those were easy to write off. But once he was away at college, he really started to exhibit extreme behavior that really he couldn't explain. He became sort of a stranger to himself. He, he did things like impulsively ran and threw a bonfire at a uh, pep rally and burned himself, or he, he tortured and killed a cat. Um, stuff that couldn't be explained away easily, and that, that was his first contact with the psychiatric profession. Unfortunately, it was happening at a time where psychiatry was in the midst of a huge debate over schizophrenia, and half the professionals wanted to blame the parents for it, and the other half thought that medicine, like Thorazine, could, could work miracles, but it meant institutionalizing them forever. So the parents had some pretty grim choices to face, and they decided to simply uh, kick the can down the curb and hope for the best and hope that he would get better on his own. And that that didn't happen. And meanwhile, other sons started to get sick, too. Now, how many eventually? There were there were six who, hmm. you know, exhibited extreme signs of schizophrenia. And then, of course, as, the, as you might imagine, everyone else in the family started to wonder if they were going to get sick, too, if there was something contagious going on. I mean, Mimi, the mother, wanted to test the water in their house to see if there was something wrong with the water. She was into uh, vitamins and nutrition for a while and enrolled everyone in a very rarefied uh, program of, of specific vitamins that she thought could help. The, the children who weren't sick were, I would argue, as deeply affected as the sick ones because not only did they wake up every day wondering if they would be next, they also woke up every day knowing that the slightest bit of aberrant behavior that they displayed might set the parents uh, into motion and, and get the parents thinking that they were uh, losing their minds as well. This sort of hypervigilance, all of them carry with them to this day. At the beginning of the book, you described some of Don's behavior in 1972. He was 27 at the time. 
um, had had he been acting out earlier? Because as I said, this usually uh, presents itself in early adulthood as the body is going through a number of changes. Yeah, the the general understanding is that it quite often appears at the end of adolescence, and that's certainly true with the Galvin sons. Almost all of them, it was their early to mid twenties. There were a couple who uh, who who became sick earlier, one at 14 and one at 18, but the others, it was 22, 23, 24. When we first meet Donald in the beginning of this book, he's home. He's been home for two years already. He's 27. He was 25 when he had the final decisive psychotic break that sent him to the state mental hospital in Pueblo, Colorado. But ever since then, he'd been home sort of in a revolving door, the way that most people even today experience acute mental illness. They, they're home till they can't be, till the medicine, either they don't take it or it doesn't help, and then they go back to the hospital and then in and out and in. And that's if they're lucky. You know, as we know, the jails are really primary mental health facilities now for a lot of people. They go in and out of jail and get their treatment there. But for Donald, he was home and and dressed in a monk's robe and walking uh, dozens or even hundreds of miles a week all through the community. He was chanting religious sayings. He was uh, fighting with his brothers who, you know, were resented him and thought that he was ruining the family. And for the youngest members, the two sisters, Margaret and Lindsay, he was a, you know, by turns an annoying presence and a frightening presence because they weren't sure what he would do next. And and he also was was pathetic and poignant, too. He would he would have bad reactions to his drugs where he would get sick. Um and, and be throwing up in, in the bathroom or, or curled up in a ball. And so um, everything about what was happening with their older brother was mystifying to them. And we're talking about a family of, with 12 children. There's a, there's a normal chaos in such a large group. Um, how much denial and, and then secrecy was there uh, within the family at the beginning? Uh, and and um, how, when did Don and Mimi realize there was something that was seriously wrong with Don Jr. rather than just a uh, kid acting out? I think I think there's some, the, the oldest son's first problems were in like 65 or 66, and then they couldn't deny it anymore in 1970. But those there were those initial four years where they were in deep, deep denial over what was happening. And they even saw the second son, Jim, start to exhibit strange behavior. And they tried to write him off as well, thinking that perhaps he was just having marital problems with his wife. He wasn't living at home. He was in his 20s. Or that he was getting his own separate medical care and that he would be okay eventually. Uh, they, they told themselves these things in order to keep moving because the alternative would be far worse. If, if the world knew that mental illness was in their family, that not only would they get blamed, but, but the father's career would be threatened. Uh, he had a prestigious career where he was advising governors in the western United States and lobbying uh, Washington, D.C. And then the other children, they wouldn't have any hope of having a normal life. And so they stayed quiet about it until they couldn't. And then things got even worse. I, I should note at this point that this, there's a lot of science in this book and a lot of pathos, a lot of tragedy. But it, I, I do hope that first and foremost readers see it as sort of a family story that they can relate to because – there are certain ways that this family interacts that independent of mental illness that that readers might really connect with. And there's, e there's even a little bit of hope toward the end as well. Hello, could you hear me? Now I can. Okay, I was uh, I, I had a little technical difficulty here. We are broadcasting from home, so um, <laughs> we're, we're it it can get a little uh, antsy at times. But uh, when did they uh, have to begin to tell their friends and and other people, and and what was the reaction? I think the um, the real apex of this problem, and the, when they couldn't keep anything quiet anymore, was when. Uh, one of the sons, Brian, uh, died in 1973, and the circumstances of his death, they did their best to cover up. It was a murder-suicide that took place out of state in California where he was living. So they were able to sort of tell 
most people that there was an accidental death or a drug-induced tragedy, um, but they really couldn't hide the mental illness issue anymore. I mean, Donald, dressed in his monk's robe, had been living in the house already for three years, and the community knew about him. This latest thing was just um, put the was, was the straw that broke the camel's back, and it be, at that point, Mimi, the mother in the family, really pivoted. She went from someone who was trying to put on a perfect front to someone who became a a happy warrior, sort of fighting on behalf of her six sons to get them help as each one of them uh, descended into mental illness. And this had its own unintended consequences. The well children felt neglected. They felt forsaken. Uh, she argued with her husband about whether the sick boys should be at home at all because of the damage they were doing to their lives. Eventually, her husband had a stroke, and she was caring for him as well. She is neither a the hero nor a villain in the story. The two girls were sent to boarding school. The two girls were sent to boarding school to get, get them out of this whole mess? Well, um, yes, but it took a while. Um, it took till 1975 for the older of the two to get sort of airlifted out of the family. Um, a, a wealthy family who the, whom the Galvins knew took, uh, took pity on them, and, and uh, Margaret, the older sister, was old enough to go to boarding school and so they paid for her and, and hosted her in Denver to go to, to go to a private school there. And then it took another three years for, for the youngest child, for Lindsay, to uh, be able to go to Hotchkiss. Um, now, and in those three years, she was abused and, and neglected and, and, uh, and left to, to live with, with sick brothers who were really uh, changing her life completely. Because there was a lot of violence in the family, some obvious, some rather private. Yes. Um, one, of the, one of the more disturbing subplots in the book is that Jim, the second son who was mentally ill, he sort of presented his home as a refuge for the younger children to get away from Donald, to get away from the chaos in the family. Unfortunately, he was a pedophile, and he uh, sexually abused both of his sisters. And this was something that they only opened up about a few years later in the in the 80s. Uh, even to one another, they were, didn't talk about it until then. And and their recovery from that trauma and their thoughts on that take up a, an important part of this book as well. Now, this is all very shocking, but is this a an unusual situation, or have there been similar situations in other families uh, where there's been uh, schizophrenia? Well, in the if, if the mail and the, the reader mail and the email I've received in the five weeks since the book came out is any indication, this is really quite representative of what it's like when, when mental oh illness sort of becomes, becomes the, the dominant feature of your family. There's a lot of volatility, a lot of fear, a lot of denial, um, and, uh, and then a lot of things getting worse before, they're, before there's action taken. And, and it's, it's quite sad to see this particular illness as being one of the ones that's left that still has such a stigma hanging over it. Even things like autism or bipolar disorder, certainly depression and anxiety, we talk about now as diseases. But schizophrenia, we don't seem to talk about at all. Um, so in well, that we call sense, it a mental illness, don't we? Yes. Um, and, um, and even then you would think, well, you know, if someone in your family had schizophrenia, you would just say, well, he has mental illness. Yeah. But um, that doesn't seem to be the way it goes. I keep ta the more people I would talk to while working on this book, the more I would hear about relatives they have who have uh, either this or other acute mental health conditions. But I had known these people for years, and they had never told me. It really is one of the last uh, unspoken ones. Um, and, and I think part of the problem with that is that it, it's so personality-altering for the subject. It feels like a death. It feels like like you've lost that person forever and what's taken their place is something that you don't understand and are sometimes afraid of. And it, it's, uh, it's deeply troubling that way. Um, Had there been the a history of mental with, illness in, in either of, the, of Don or Mimi's families? Not really, no. And that's one of the curious features of the hereditary nature of schizophrenia. It tends to skip and jump around and meander in families. And There was and a double so bind theory. Yeah, the double bind theory is all about blaming the parents. It was 
created by Gregory Bateson, who for a time was married to Margaret Mead. He was really an anthropologist. He wasn't didn't have a psychiatry background, but he posited that that uh, that parents, particularly mothers, would set up these no-win scenarios for their children. Like they'd say, "Tie your shoes," and then they'd say, "Don't be so obedient." And so the the child would become mixed up and would somehow then create their own alternative reality and descend into that imaginary world rather than deal with their their horrible, overbearing, domineering mother. And and this was a, a theory that, unbelievably, it really held sway for decades. I've talked to psychiatrists who, even in the late 70s or around 1980, as late as that, were being told by their professors that bad parenting could cause schizophrenia. And, and early on in the diagnosis of the children, doctors thought that Mimi may have played a role in the boy's illness. Yes, they, yes, they took her aside. This was part of her decision to, to become the main steward for her children's care, even if it meant damaging the well children in the house, because she was taken aside and, she, and it was explained to her that she was the problem. And she fought that uh, every day for the rest of her life. But uh, it, it, it must have been really difficult for the, the, uh, the, the members of the family, the children uh, who didn't suffer from mental illness. They had to develop relationships with their siblings or just cut off from them. Yes, and, and one of the biggest questions I asked while working on this book was not just how could all this happen to one family, but how did such a family remain a family? And in particular to the sisters, I would ask them, you could have left town, changed your name, gone to law school, sent a Christmas card every couple of years, and you would never have had to have thought about this ever again. After the way you were treated, no one would have blamed you for doing this. What, what keeps you together with these people? What binds you to them? And in the case of Lindsay, what makes you their primary caregiver, which is really what she is now, that the mother has passed? And there are different answers, and that's what I love about the story as it turned out. Everyone has a different answer and a different approach to how they're dealing with their family issues. When did the Galvin family become known to researchers in the field? It took until the mid-'80s, until around 1984 or 85. This, this was an interesting period because this was long before we had the technology to sequence the human genome. But it was at a time when we were starting to get the technology to sort of check out genes from a distance, with things like MRIs and, and PET scans and CAT scans, um, and sequencing of DNA allowed for better analysis of DNA. Suddenly, we, were, we had a window into the genetic function of certain diseases that was very encouraging for simple diseases, single gene di diseases like Huntington's diseases, but it wasn't very helpful for complex diseases like cancer or schizophrenia. But there was a vanguard, a young, a couple of researchers who really were determined to study schizophrenia. And I write about them in this book. And they met the Galvins, one researcher from the National Institute of Mental Health named Lynn DeLisi, and then a doctor, Robert Friedman, from the University of Colorado in Denver. They both became convinced that studying families with schizophrenia in them was a little like studying a Petri dish with, uh, with a lot of disease in it. You could, it was sort of a closed set of a data set that you could use to really analyze the disease in a way that might help us understand how it works in all people who have it. And, and they were in the minority, and they were often scoffed at. And I tell the story of the twists and turns their careers took and how their work with the Galvins actually led to some pretty significant advances. This is stuff that even the family hadn't known uh, by the, at the time that I first met them. Were the Galvins open to being the subjects of, of research, to being guinea pigs in um, a sense? Well, Mimi, the mother, was delighted. You know, she, at last, there were people coming through her door who were telling her that they believed, like she did, that this was genetic and not about uh, bad parenting or about something in the, in the environment. So she was ready to work with them. And so she implored her children, all of whom were already over 21, to, um, or almost all of them, to, to come back and get, have, take blood tests, be interviewed, you know, donate genetic material. And so they all complied. And, um, and uh, the, the sisters in particular, I remember feeling a lot of hope at that time, thinking, well, maybe 
maybe this will help us. Maybe this will lead to a cure. Um, but, of course, years go on and priorities change and pharmaceutical companies don't want to invest. Everyone's happy that Thorazine and Clozapine, the big drugs that treat schizophrenia, kind of quiet people down. It doesn't seem to bother people that those drugs don't cure anything. Mm. And, and so the things stay the same for a very long time for this family. How nice, though, that it actually ends up leading to a couple of interesting breakthroughs toward the end of their story. The Galvin family has been studied for nearly four decades. What has their contribution been to the study of schizophrenia? Have, has it uh, helped in any way, or are they just cogs in a, a much larger machine? Well, my feeling about scientific progress is that everybody, everybody who gets studied is a cog in that machine, and that there is there are very, very few aha, eureka moments in science that we tend to fantasize about that. We think that everything will be like polio, where one day there isn't a vaccine and then the next day suddenly it's over. Um, but in, in fact, scientific progress most of the time means a lot of two steps forward and one steps back, a lot of conflicting theories and agendas. But that said, this family has been remarkable. They, they the, Robert Friedman in Denver has had used them to pinpoint an area in the brain involved in sensory processing that he was able to associate with schizophrenia. And using that, he is now coming up with therapies that might be able to help children in utero become more resilient uh, toward um, developing mental illness. And that, that, if it works, and it's early days and looking very good, but it if it works, could be a miracle for a lot of people who develop acute mental illness. And then Lynn DeLisi uh, from the National Institute of Mental Health, years later, after many twists and turns, the Galvin family's DNA was finally sequenced, and lo and behold, there really was a genetic mutation uh, that they all shared, uh, that the sick children all shared, that had to do with um, an area of brain function that could shine a light on how the disease works in others. Um, families really ended up being the right thing to study, and these people were right all along. It just took a long time for that to happen. I believe you've dropped out again. I can keep vamping, though, for the listener and uh, talk more about this. The, the, the idea behind this book was to uh, not just tell the family story, but to weave in and in, in and out with the, the story of the science of schizophrenia. Um, but I didn't want those scientific sections to feel like homework or that you were made to eat your vegetables. And so you'll find when you look at the book that it sort of uh, flip-flops between the family story and then every now and then during a break you get uh, a discussion of the science that hopefully raises the stakes for the family story. We have to take a little break. We'll be back in just a moment. This is London Located Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Before we get back to my conversation with Robert Kolker about his book, Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family, uh, I'd like to talk to you about something that's also very important. The, the pandemic has hit public radio stations across the nation particularly hard, and WBAI is no exception. And that's why if you'd like us to be able to keep bringing you this show, Leonard Lopez at Large, weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., we need you to step up 
and become a member of the station. And you can do that by calling right now, 516-620-3602, or by going to our website, give2wbai.org. And, and one of the best ways to support the station is to become a BAI buddy, a sustaining member. Listeners who contribute $10 or more each month, which provides us with a guaranteed cash flow. And, and perhaps uh, here's another thing. Uh, it's, uh, this may be the last time I even mention this. Perhaps you'd like to join me for a kind of a, uh, a teleconferencing dinner. We have just a few spots left for something we're calling My Dinner with Leonard, where 10 listeners will join me for a private teleconference. Uh, it, you can ask me anything that you'd like about my 43 years in radio. I've spoken to a lot of very interesting people. Uh, also, what, it, what uh, my life in general is like, although I hope you don't get too personal. And it will also be a, a chance to meet some of your fellow listeners. But there are only a few spots left, so why don't you make that call right now to 516-620-3602, or you can go to our website, give to wbai.org. And I'm really looking forward to meeting our listeners. I always enjoy that. It's a way to support the station and also have some fun. Although technically we may not be eating dinner, I'm sure we can find things to nosh on. And I'd be delighted to discuss food, what dishes you've been cooking lately, and what restaurants you're most eager to return to once we can resume something that approximate our normal lives. Um, the... Um, were there any guests that uh, you've always wondered about what they were like when the, the microphones were turned off? You can ask me about that as well. Again, the number is 516-620-3602, or you can go to our website, give to the number to wbai.org. One last time, if you become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Located Lodge, you'll have the option of attending a teleconference with me that we're calling my dinner with Leonard. And from all of us at the station, thank you so much. We're returning now to my guest, Robert Kolker, whose latest book is Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family. It's published by Doubleday. Now, you have kind of alluded to some of the, uh, the treatments that we've had in the past. Um, one of them was uh, electroconvulsive therapy, ECT, more commonly known as shock therapy. That was widely used in the 50s and 60s, but came to be seen as rather barbaric. Isn't it being used again in some cases? It is back. It's slightly different now. Um, it doesn't look like um, how it looks in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, patients are anesthetized during the procedure, so they feel no pain. Um, it's quick. It's outpatient. Um, you don't have to be institutionalized to get it. It seems to be very effective for depression in some cases. There are lots of famous people who have sworn by the treatments they uh, experienced with ECT, including Dick Cavett. Um, and so it, it's become an acceptable form of treatment. But back, back in the day, it was, it was certainly seen as barbaric, and, and probably the way it, it was administered was probably pretty rough. It, it had, a, it had a antecedents in things like insulin shock therapy, where you would inject the patient with insulin. The whole idea behind these therapies was to induce some kind of seizure in a patient so that their brain would be forced to focus in a way, almost like trying to snap someone out of it if they're caught in a loop of, of mental illness. And, you know, the problem with that is that they, they would come away going, well, yeah, that worked, but the next day they needed it again. So they should have insulin shock therapy every day. <laughs> which is just a horrible thing to contemplate. But that's what happened in a lot of hospitals in the middle of the 20th century. There was also lobotomy. And so when... when um, but lobotomy when, when, is forever. Yeah. You're, 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 and you're, you're, cutting, you're cutting things in the brain. For sure. And it's indeed barbaric. And one of the ironies and complexities in the science story in Hidden Valley Road is how the people who were blaming mothers for mental illness they actually, at the time, were seen as being on the side of the angels because they were the ones doing battle with the lobotomy people and the electroshock therapy people. They, they were the ones standing up saying, these people are human beings. They aren't uh, rats. You can just sort of, you know, 
do weird brain experiments on. Um, but that would suggest that talk there, therapy it, would work. Did talk therapy ever work? Um, for for acute diseases like schizophrenia, it could be argued that talk therapy basically never worked. Although if, perhaps a, a mixture of talk therapy with early interventions in the early teen years and some medication can be helpful. And of course, there is no cookie cutter explanation for schizophrenia. So there could be people who have what is diagnosed as schizophrenia, but are in moderate scales so that perhaps therapy works. So I, I don't want to say blanketly that it doesn't work, but it certainly was, uh, was not hitting the bullseye for a lot of the more serious cases for the, for the people who ended up institutionalized. It, it was a difficult wish- riddle to solve because, you know, do you, do you try to be gentle with a patient or you, do you choose something extreme like drugs or surgery? There seemed to be no good answer. So let's talk about those drugs. So we often hear that schizophrenic who are treated with various medications will stop taking the meds because of the side effects that are so unpleasant. Uh, what medications are we talking about? And are, are there any good ones? You, you said that the ones that... Uh, are being used today kind of have an effect, but are not really curative. This was one of the biggest misconceptions I had going into the reporting of this book. I really thought that um, the drugs that were being used for, for acute psychosis, for things like schizophrenia, were every bit as, as miraculous as what has come on, on into the market for depression or, or for anxiety or even for bipolar disorder. Um, but I was mistaken that the drugs that are used today to treat people with schizophrenia are in the are basically the the descendants that the, they're basically the same thing as the drugs that were used in the 50s and 60s. They they're all either derivatives of thorazine or of clozapine. And clozapine perhaps is more effective and it's sort of used as a last resort drug. But in terms of being effective, they don't turn back the clock for patients. They merely muffle their symptoms. So it makes them more manageable, which can be a godsend for people who were really doing self-harm or were volatile and, or, or even dangerous. But, but it doesn't, it's not a cure. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't lead to functionality in any way. In fact, over time, it takes a physical toll where the cure can be as bad as the disease. Um, two of the Galvin children suffered from what was most likely neuroleptic malignant syndrome, which is quite literally the cure being as bad as the disease, side effects from the medication leading to heart trouble, obesity, difficulty with physical movements, uh, all sorts of difficult problems. Um, This is a a real problem a lot of people experience. So part of the problem is that schizophrenia is an umbrella term for a number of different kinds of things that all lead to psychotic episodes? That's right. The best analogy I heard of this was a researcher who I quote in the book saying, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, fever was a disease. You know, we, we looked at it and said, oh, they have fever. What are we going to do about it? Maybe we should leech them. You know, as, how are we going to solve the fever? But then over time, what we learned is that fever isn't a disease. Fever is a symptom of something going on in your body, an infection perhaps, or a virus any number of things that could be happening that are causing that temperature, that fever. And so it's possible that schizophrenia is, is like fever in that it merely is the manifestation of something going on in the brain that we do not quite yet understand. Or many things. It could be that schiz- what we think of now as schizophrenia is actually six different things. Because of the, the number of Galvin siblings who had it, did it manifest itself differently in each case? Yes, and this was an important job for me in telling the story of this family. I wanted everyone's point of view in there, and that included the mentally ill children to the extent possible. I really wanted them to be human beings and to do that, and not just monsters in the book or faceless cookie-cutter mentally ill people. And so what I learned very quickly is that that was not difficult to do because they each did manifest the illness in very different ways. Uh, There was hyper-religiosity in one and hallucinations in another and self-harm in a third one and uh, drug dependency in a a fourth one. Um, uh, And and then finally one who was, you know, paranoid all of the time. Um, There was one who was actually self-aware, who knew that he was mentally ill. That that perhaps was the most 
um, emotional story to tell. He would look up at the sky and say, I'm having another hallucination. You know, can't you see this too? Um, this, uh, everybody was a little bit different in the way they processed their disease. And of course, they were different as people as well. So that means that uh, there, as of now, we still don't really know how to treat schizophrenia. And what happens with people like the Galvin, the Galvin boys? Uh, are they ever capable of uh, living what we might consider a normal life? It's amazing how little we know about schizophrenia. One, but, but lately we've become, there's encouraging news in the ways of early interventions. Because the stigma is beginning to lift and because there's more openness in treating other mental illnesses, people are, are starting to try to treat their children when they're displaying strange symptoms at 12 or 14 or 16, and they aren't waiting for them to completely decompensate at the age of 23 or 24. And we know that the fewer psychotic breaks you have, the more chance you have at a functional life. So if you're able to find a way to treat a person's illness at an early age before they've had too many psychotic breaks to really damage their gray matter, then there's more of a hope for them to live independently, to have, uh, to have uh, perhaps a disabled life, but a life. And, um, and that, that is, that's the hope that exists right now. For the Galvins themselves, they, the three surviving mentally ill sons are all in stable places right now. Two of them are in assisted living environments where they are, uh, you know, cordial, kind people, but are impaired, you know, to, cognitively. So you can talk about a few things with them, but then there are limits. And then a third one um, is having physical problems that are similar to what his brothers had from the clozapine that he's taking for decades. He's, his health is starting to fail. But he he's spent decades very functional. He drove. He volunteered at a homeless shelter for veterans. He made friends and gave them lift places. He lived independently in federally subsidized Section 8 housing. Um, so you could argue that he, Matthew Galvin, was a success story for medicine. Although you said that the gray matter is damaged forever. Well, from, from, your, from psychotic breaks, for sure. Not, the medicine isn't what's damaging the gray matter. It's the acute it's the advance of the illness. So the best thing you could hope for from the medicine is that it kind of hits the pause button on that. You also spoke with other psychiatrists and researchers who had nothing to do with the Galvin family. What kinds of insights did you get from those conversations? Well, that, those were very important, really vital conversations to have because I didn't want to present the science on the Galvin family in a vacuum. I wanted to be sure that I wasn't overselling or underselling what was found out thanks to them. What I learned from, from, uh, from the most accomplished people in the field, people at the Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT and at Hopkins and elsewhere, is it, the, the best people who work on this have a healthy appreciation for what is not known about the illness. And they may have particular hobby horses that they ride, like they may be convinced that perhaps one day the sequencing of the genome really will reveal ways toward therapeutics, or they might have other things that they might be pursuing. But they all are, um, they, they all are, are philosophical about, about how this, this illness is, a, is an interesting mix of nature and nurture. They all understand now that it's a vulnerability disease. It's something where you and your brothers and sisters might all have the same genetic vulnerability toward developing something like this. Um, but that doesn't mean that all of you would get it. And even if you did each get it, you might get it in different ways. This is something geneticists all agree on now, that you, that, that you could have the same genetic makeup but have something different manifest as a result of it. It's, the analogy I like to think of is, and this is a virus, analogy. It's not a really good one. But let's say everyone in your family catches a cold. Um, not everybody has the same symptoms. Like one person has the sniffles and one person has a sore throat and you each have it the same way. Genetically, that seems to be what happens with a lot of illnesses and a lot of uh, genetic cocktails that, that families all share. Now, the family was 14 people originally. Uh, a number of them have died. Uh, how many have died and how many 
and, and were any of those deaths associated with the schizophrenia? Yes, three of the of the six mentally ill children are dead. Everyone else is still alive. Both parents are dead now too. I was able to meet the mother, Mimi, and interview her several times before she uh, died in in 2017. Um, but the father died in 2003, I believe. Um, the um, you know the, the the three brothers who died all died as a function of their illness. Brian was the murder suicide who I mentioned earlier in the hour, and then. Jim and Joe both died from health effects from their medication. Both died of heart failure. And and Don Jr. still alive, the, the oldest son. He is. He is. He's. Um, I'm not going to make any Don Jr. jokes. <laughs> Different Don Jr. He's um he's 75 and and um and very mild, very charming. Uh, you know, he can. He lives in assisted living, and that. And but he sees doctors on his own. There, he's. He, um, you know, when family comes, they can they take him out to dinner. He sits in a restaurant and eats dinner, and is and and answers questions. He's quiet and subdued, uh, but but he is paying attention. And I've had conversations with him where he he talks at length about each of his relatives and how they're all related to one another. So he knows who's who. And then, and then he'll go off on a tangent and talk about how he is descended from an octopus, and so so it, it oh. kind of goes off the rails after a little while. But it, it he he has a certain serenity about him, which it makes him uh, enjoyable to be around these days. Now we have pretty much no time left, but uh, I was thinking about all the discussion uh, coming up with some kind of a vaccine or med- medicines to to deal with COVID nineteen. Uh, you make the uh, the situation regarding schizophrenia sound rather bleak. Uh, it's been around a long time, and yet uh, we don't seem to to know how to to uh, to deal with it. So, um, is there any hope for the future? Well, you could argue that sequencing the human genome really muddied the waters and made things seem even more complicated for schizophrenia, and that's very dispiriting. But I've heard it argued the other way. Um, there are researchers who tell me that we have the ground beneath our feet now, that, that we know now for sure that there really are genes that play a role in schizophrenia, even if they play a tiny role, and that this is really the beginning of the, of the final act in, in licking this disease. It means that, that now we have something to really base it on in order to try to go to work to really see how it works in the brain. The more we learn about how this works in the brain, not just what it is, but how it is, the more we'll be able to manipulate its effects and maybe even break, make the brain more resilient so that it never falls prey to the, this disease. Robert Kolker's uh, previous book, Lost Girls, was a New York Times bestseller, has been adapted into a film starring Amy Ryan. We've been discussing his latest called Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family. It's published by Doubleday. And... Robert, thank you so much for being our guest today. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thanks so much, Leonard. I appreciate it. And that brings us to the end of today's show. I want to give special thanks to my uh, segment producer, Todd McGovern, who prepared today's interview. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows uh, on uh, streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard's Located at Large on Facebook and Twitter and our website, LeonardLocatedLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. And if you'd like to comment on any of our shows, you can always write to me at LeonardLocate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I want to take a moment to to ask you again uh, to support WBAI. All independent media are in a difficult position right now because of the pandemic, but as a small public radio station that relies totally on the generosity of our listeners, we don't take money from advertisers or from foundations or anyone else, just you, our listeners, that has put us in a particularly difficult spot. And that's why we're asking our listeners to please step up right now, go to our website, give to WBAI.org, or call 
516-620-3602 to help keep WBAI and Let It Locate at Large on the One great way to help and, and to give us the kind of enduring support that we need throughout the year is to become a sustaining member or what we call a BAI buddy. And you can do that by making a monthly contribution of any amount, $10 a month, $15 a month, $20, whatever is comfortable for you. And it allows us to plan for the future. We get cash flow. So we don't have to worry every month about where all the money is coming from. Uh, again, the number is 516-620-3602. Or you can go to our website, wbai.org. And as I mentioned earlier, we have just a few remaining slots open uh, for uh, what we're calling my dinner with Leonard, a private teleconferencation uh, conference, teleconference, a video conference with ten listeners and me, and uh, I'm looking forward to that because uh, it's always fun talking to to our to the listeners and finding out what's on their minds. And I'm curious about what you're thinking, uh, but you can only do it if you become a BAI buddy. As again, ten dollars a month, fifteen dollars a month, twenty. If you got a lot of money, $100 a month, but whatever is comfortable for you. And if you can't become a BAI buddy, we hope that you'll still become a member and give us a show of support. Again, the number 516-620-3602, or you can go to our website, give to WBAI.org. That's give and then the number two, WBAI.org. Whatever level you're comfortable donating at, it all goes helps to ensure that we can keep bringing you this show. So please make your contribution in the name of Let It Locate at Large. Uh, and uh, from all of us here at the station, thank you. Join us again tomorrow when uh, my guests will be the makers of a new film called American Trial, the Eric Garner story. Uh, they'll be joined by Esau Snipes Garner, Eric Garner's widow. So I hope you can hear us then. Have a great evening. Stay safe. Thank you.